BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle hint they may be moving on from royal bombshells. Kate Middleton's early years campaign echoes a rather thorny royal debate and Prince Andrew's comeback hopes take a bizarre turn. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. We have finally come down from the frenzied high of one of the most busy periods in royal reporting since, well, the last incredibly busy period in royal reporting. And as the dust has settled, an easily missable story has appeared in Variety, which could actually hint at quite a major and very interesting shift in the Sussex PR strategy. Um, So what has happened is Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced some staff changes, a few people leaving, some promotions, a few new hires, but most importantly of all, a move away from look-back projects to as they now move forwards. So they now look forwards to their kind of future outside the royal family. So this all relates to the departure of Ben Browning, who was head of Archwell Productions, their TV division, and Farrah Taylor, their head of marketing. The interesting bit, though, is this thing about look-back projects. So what are they? Well, for almost two years since Oprah, in March 2021, Harry and Meghan have, through a number of different formats, a number of different projects, been retelling basically the same story, which was about their exit from royal life. Now, that obviously is looking back to events in the past that, you know, are no longer in motion. You know, they've gone, they've left, they're in America now. And if they are moving away from look-back projects, that does suggest that they are no longer going to be focusing on that whole rift, what went wrong, um, the kind of what are termed bombshells or broadsides or swipes at the palace, the monarchy, other members of the family. Those have all been bound up in those projects that are looking backwards at the past. Um, Now, what's interesting about this idea that they are now looking forwards um, is that they are also seemingly with Archwell Productions, according to Variety, switching their focus slightly from from looking at unscripted shows to looking more at scripted. So scripted can mean reality content, but scripted reality doesn't strike me as being a very Harry and Meghan sphere. So it could be that we're going to see more fiction from the Sussexes. But also, I think this is really interesting that they're potentially not going to be revisiting their royal story. Obviously, that has been hugely, hugely commercially successful. But as I've spoken about on this podcast before, it has also come at a cost to them reputationally. So, you know, Netflix was hugely watched, something like 88 million uh, hours of watching of download time in its first period after it launched. Harry's book, the fastest selling nonfiction book in history, you know, huge sales figures, 1.6 million, you know, mega, mega commercial successes. But obviously, Newsweek polling has shown that they, their reputations in America have taken a massive, massive knock in that time. So this has been the end of the first wave of their projects. So we had the first Spotify podcast, which was Archetypes with Megan. We had the first Netflix show, which was Harry and Megan, you know, launched to a absolute tidal wave of press coverage. And then also Harry's book, 
so now that they've got that stuff out of the way, they can kind of go anywhere and they can choose perhaps to try to rebuild their brand, which has taken a knock. So they can try to potentially look at charity work or philanthropy or something just completely and totally different. And that is what's so interesting about this easily missable story in Variety. If it is the case that they're turning their back on the kind of reality-targeted approach to their Netflix deal and wind up going down the fiction route instead, then that will be a landmark shift in their in their approach and we'll potentially get to see a whole new version of Harry and Meghan as TV producers. Um, alternatively, though, they are still ultimately going to be under commercial pressure because everybody is. Uh, welcome to life in the private sector. Um, obviously, in the monarchy, you are insulated from the pressure to be commercially successful. You don't need to turn a profit and you can just go about your you know, your good deeds and your philanthropic work without having to worry about anybody's anybody's baseline. Um, so it will be really interesting to see whether they can kind of craft a niche for themselves within an incredibly competitive industry, one of the most competitive industries on the planet, um, while rebuilding their brand, which has traditionally focused on being champions of equality, you know, of spreading the coronavirus vaccine, and funding good causes, fighting racism, fighting climate change, you know, will we get to see those aspects of the kind of brands that we've known for the last few years? Or will this just be a complete revamp and new look? Only time will tell. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, we're going to take a look at Kate Middleton's biggest project and the really interesting light that it shines on a major and very controversial debate that has been happening within the royal family recently. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello everyone. Now, this is a really big week for Kate Middleton because the Princess of Wales is launching a major campaign to highlight the importance of the early years to children's development. So, uh, the big take-home seems to be basically that from pregnancy to age five, the brain develops more than at any other time in a person's life. Um, so, Kate has some specific words to reinforce this message, and she says there are these are the most preventative years by focusing our collective time energy and resources to build a supportive, nurturing world around the youngest members of our society and those caring for them, we can make a huge difference to the health and happiness for generations to come. Now, this is really interesting because Prince Harry has spoken back in May 2021 about what he described as genetic pain and some specialists in the area have suggested may have been more along the lines of generational trauma. But basically, he's been talking about the way that the emotionally cold landscape of royal upbringings can kind of resonate and echo from generation to generation and create problems emotionally for, for members of the royal family. Um, so not only that, but he's actually been he- quite heavily criticised for doing it. So back in May 2021, he was a guest on a podcast called The Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard, where he talked about how his father's upbringing 
um, may have created problems that Charles then passed on to him. Now, he was uh, clear to say that he wasn't intending to blame anybody, that it wasn't about pointing fingers, but just about trying to break that cycle. Now, what Harry then went said in his book Spare is that, you know, he talks about Charles not hugging him um, at the point that uh, his father told him Princess Diana had died. He talked about the fact that he, Harry, has never hugged the Queen. Um, now, obviously, um, Charles, in his in the 1994 biography that he cooperated with, with the journalist Jonathan Dimbleby, also that book suggests that the Queen didn't really hug Charles very much. This was, again, actually something that Charles was criticised for at the time. Um, it said that the only place that he knew he was guaranteed to cuddle was in the nursery with his nanny, Mabel Anderson, um, who was, in fact, the first person that Charles turned to when he needed a support, emotional support and sympathy. And one another thing that Harry mentions in Spare is Charles, when he was five and when Princess Anne was three, uh, they were left behind in London while the Queen and Philip went on a six-month tour of the Commonwealth. So obviously this was would probably never happen now. Well, it, it you know not would never happen now. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. Uh, but it did happen then, and so this really is. Charles was kind of like at the end of the period that Kate's talking about. He was five, so that's the kind of very end of the early years period. Um, but Princess Anna, age three, was kind of still right in the middle of it. So um, Harry has been trying to kind of tell this story of how the emotionally cold environment within the royal family. Um, has kind of created this these people who are not sufficiently in touch with their own emotions to be able to deal with complex mental health problems when they occur in family members. Um, obviously, we all know very well about Princess Diana's mental health troubles, and one of the things that Harry's been trying to talk about all these years is his own struggles with mental health, his journey through therapy, and of course also the experiences Meghan had while she was uh, the subject of a large number of negative media stories in Britain. Harry obviously feels that he didn't get sufficient help dealing with that problem. So Kate has not obviously mentioned any of that. She is simply talking in general about early years development in children and how to encourage it. But it's really interesting that she talks about this building and nurturing world and a supportive environment and what everybody can do to help. Now, of course, people will think what they want to think, but Harry has been trying to basically tell this story of an institution that needs to change and a family that needs to change. Now, he may not have been criticised by Kate and he may not have been criticised by William because they obviously don't uh, speak publicly very often. But what's really interesting is that every step of the way, he has been very heavily criticised within the media. Um, obviously, some debate about Harry and Meghan and the way that they tell their story is completely justified. But one thing that's been really interesting is that it has felt on a number of occasions like some quite important points that Harry and Meghan have been trying to make have ultimately fallen by the wayside. There's always that balancing act between a legitimate debate um, and a legitimate conversation about, you know, things that people may genuinely object to and what Harry and Meghan have done on the one hand, and also being able to put personalities and egos to one side and try to see if there is also uh, something legitimate being put forward here. I would be really interested to know whether Kate and William have made that connection themselves behind closed doors as she's been putting these comments together and as she's been putting this campaign together. Obviously, it has been commented on 
in the past many times before and will be commented on many times again that William and Kate have also tried to move beyond the kind of traditional, slightly colder approach to royal parenting and, you know, bring their children up in a much more supportive, nurturing environment. So they, in all honesty, probably feel that they were already on the same page as Harry in that respect many, many years ago. But perhaps also, you know, for those who did jump down Prince Harry's throat. I seem to remember there was one headline saying that, you know, he was attacking the Queen and all the rest of it. Maybe it it could give a little window of opportunity for some of those people to think about whether there was actually a genuinely important message in all of those comments. Right, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston and you will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. Now, when I'm back, the campaign to rehabilitate Prince Andrew is just getting weird. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, everyone. Now, we had last week Gillen Maxwell standing up uh, from prison and giving an interview to Talk TV in which he defended Prince Andrew and said that the uh, photograph, the famous photo of him with his arm around Virginia Jeffrey, was a fake. Um, and now we have a really bizarre front page of one of Britain's major, probably most read broadsheets, the Daily Telegraph which shows a photo that uh, we're led by the newspaper to believe kind of exonerates Prince Andrew. And it shows two people um, sat in a bathtub in Gillen Maxwell's house. Now, what the newspaper's trying to say is that this photo shows that Virginia Jeffrey, the woman who accused Prince Andrew of abusing her when she was an Epstein sex slave, is wrong. And she, they say she must be wrong um, because she said that the... Uh, intercourse between her and Andrew began in the bathtub. It's now it's always been the Maxwell position that that wasn't possible because the bathtub was too small. Now this photo is supposed to prove that that's the case. I think the first thing to comment on about the photo is that there does actually seem to be quite a bit of space in that bathtub. But I think the most striking and weird aspect of this story is that the two people who are in there are wearing masks of Prince Andrew and Virginia Jeffrey. So they kind of sat there with like paper stuck to their faces with like a printout photo of Andrew's face and a printout photo of Virginia's face. So it's like it's gone really down a very, very strange tunnel. Um, and who on earth is telling Andrew or telling the Maxwells or telling anybody that this is in any way helping Andrew? I have absolutely no idea because frankly, it is just making all of them look completely uh, insensitive and inconsiderate to the very real victims of Jeffrey Epstein, not least, of course, back to the fact that, you know, the entire purpose of running it is supposed to demonstrate that the bathtub was too small for two people to perform those kind of acts in. But there they both are sat in the bathtubs, clearly fitting. So it's not really clear what they're trying to say anyway. This all takes place against the backdrop of stories attributed to anonymous sources suggesting that Andrew might attempt to stage another comeback, that he might try to get the lawsuit that Jeffrey brought against him reopened. You know, people might remember that he settled that out of court. He paid her an undisclosed sum in damages in order to kind of wish away the case, stop it from causing damage to reputationally to the royal family. 
Now, these reports are suggesting that he might try to reopen that Pandora's box. The reason being that uh, Virginia was involved in a separate lawsuit against Alan Dershowitz, and that what case wound up collapsing. Virginia withdrew her allegations um, and acknowledged that perhaps she may have uh, made a, a genuine mistake in relation to Dershowitz. Well, there's two things that I think are really interesting here. One, Andrew still clearly has not learned the lesson that this is not a hole he's going to get out of by keeping digging, digging, digging. He is, in fact, only going to make his situation worse and worse and worse from a PR perspective. I am told by lawyers that his legal attempts are almost certain to fail um, unless there is something completely extraordinary that we don't yet know about. And the other interesting thing about it is, so the hypothesis is that the only reason he settled the case to begin with was to spare the blushes of the Queen in her Platinum Jubilee year. But now that the Queen has passed away, he no longer has to worry about ruining the end of her life um, and leaving him free to reopen this can of worms, irrespective of what damage it might still do to the monarchy. But obviously, Charles's coronation is just around the corner. So... Having kind of spared the Queen this trauma, he is now seemingly perfectly happy to inflict it on his brother. Um, his brother, obviously, has just come off a wave of really um, really high-profile negative coverage arising out of uh, Prince Harry's book, Spare, and also his Netflix show. And this has actually damaged the royal family among Gen Z, among 18 to 24-year-olds. Less so among older people, but among that young cohort, now 52% of 18 to 24-year-old Brits would vote to, would choose to abolish the monarchy. Um, and that is the first time there has been, that I can recall in my lifetime anyway, that there has been such a comprehensive uh, vote in favour of abolition among that young group of people. So this, obviously, if it does blow up again and Andrew does go for it and try to get this overturned, is going to play exceptionally badly with those young people. It's going to kick it all up into the public domain once again. It's going to refocus everybody's attention away from the coronation and on to the uh, royal family's most shamed member. Um, We're talking here about a guy who has exceptionally low net approval ratings in the kind of minus uh, minus 70 sort of ballpark. Only about kind of 12% of British people um, still like him and they're predominantly older uh, older British people who will be basing that viewpoint on their um, buried memories from many, many years ago rather than recent events. So again, I mean, seriously, I just would love to know who is actually advising Andrew this if he is actually going to go for it because it, Apart from anything else, I just can't see it being successful. I mean, if you agree to settle a case, then it is a very high bar to then get yourself out of that agreement. Um, Apart from anything else, the money was paid. You know, that money was paid. So if he wants to get that back, you know, why, in fact, actually, like, honestly, why should the US courts uh, take their time up with something that he voluntarily agreed to, to, uh, to settle out of court? You know, no one forced him to. It was his choice. He may have had other considerations to do with the Queen's Jubilee, but they were his considerations, needless to say. It was still his choice. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if Charles thought 2023 was going to be easier than 2022, it doesn't seem that way so far. 
But that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. <laughs>